0: Sport administrators, sport fans, and participants themselves. Sarah and Ash sit down with a bunch of inspiring female leaders from within the sports industry who share their journey of achieving their aspirations.
1: There isn't many positions that today's guest hasn't held. A CEO, director, consultant, author, leadership and cultural lecturer, media performer, and vocal advocate for gender equity, Lee Russell is one of a kind. Lee has contributed to many sport organisations over the years, including the AFL Players Association, Gold Coast Suns, Essendon Football Club, Netball Victoria, Cricket Australia, Tennis Victoria, and most recently is CEO of Swimming Australia. Since finishing at Swimming Australia, Lee has moved to efforts towards greater equality within sport and especially creating more women leaders within the industry through both Champions of Change and the Women Leaders of Sports initiative. We can't wait to dive into this chat, so welcome to the podcast, Lee. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Welcome, we've got Lee. Ashie. We're very excited to have you. It's been a and long time coming. It has taken us a while. to Oh, no, I'm so
0: sorry. That's on me. And thank you for very kind words of introduction. That's um, It's often embarrassing to sit through, but it's lovely, so thank you.
2: We've been really looking forward to this one for a while and really looking forward to this question, which is what we ask everyone and we love hearing the answer to. What is your earliest memory in sport? It actually would have to do with my footy-loving
0: family. Um, It would be watching the 6pm replay, AFL replay, on a Saturday night with my dad. And the whole house had to be super quiet for when Scott Palmer came on. Um, And I know I'm only talking now to probably one percent of the population that are as old as me. Palmer's um, punchlines. Palmer's punchlines yes so oh my goodness I can't believe I've met someone that knows what I'm talking about but yeah so the whole house had to be completely silent. I was in a house full of brothers and my dad hung on to every word that Scotty Palmer used to say about the footy and then the, the replay was kind of the big thing that happened on the weekend. So that would probably be my first memory. In in for myself though, probably it is playing basketball with my next door neighbour Bianca who dragged me along one day and said, Come on, let's go and do this and we're only about eight or nine and I was the worst, most hopeless player the team had ever seen. I'm pretty sure of that.
1: No, I'm sure I'm sure not. But you did start first studies as a teacher. When did you realise that you wanted to move into the sports space? Uh, I don't think I ever did realise, actually. It it certainly wasn't a conscious decision to
0: delve into a a sports career. Um, I started out teaching and I was pretty happily doing that. I I loved working with the kids. I probably didn't see myself working in education longer term um, for a whole bunch of reasons but I also in my personal life had a lot of contact with athletes. My boyfriend at the time, now husband, was working um, in sport and so our house was always full of athletes and I just started I guess working with them across the kitchen table in in, you know coaching them and talking to them about their off-field careers I guess and found that I had a real passion for or, or really curiosity for human performance and and a real passion to help people kind of make the best of whatever situation they found themselves in as elite athletes. So I did a bit more study and focused firstly on I guess what you'd call athlete well-being now um, and really focused on AFL athletes and what they were doing off field and that was sort of Back in the day, when you know there wasn't really play development managers or or wellbeing kind of services, so it was pretty interesting. I
2: find There's a lot of people who have got education backgrounds who find their way working into sport. Obviously, it goes hand in hand with coaching. Do you have any advice for maybe people who might be listening to the podcast and studying teaching at the moment, or they are teaching and want to transition into the sports industry, even in the management role, which maybe they think, oh no, I'm a coach, I should go into performance.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. I meet so many people with education backgrounds and I actually don't think, you know, it's a coincidence. I, I loved my teaching degree. I think it taught me so much about sports administration and vice versa, probably. So, yes, obviously coaching is that natural um, synergy with education. But having, you know, even from a sport admin background, having a teaching degree where you learn every 50 minutes or an hour to Front up to 30 different clients, um, all with different needs. Um, trying to keep them all on the same page, heading in the in the same direction. You know, in a bureaucratic kind of system, I, I find that there's a heap of symmetry. And certainly, you know, learning to teach is pretty much what sports all about. So. You know, my advice would be actually you're on a winner, and even though you might need to get some more specific kind of skill acquisition in and around sport admin, for example, you really have got what the baseline is needed in sport through education.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of similarities with teaching and sports administration, but some of the positions that you've been in have been such public-facing roles. Whereas teaching, you know, not as public-facing, I mean, you are dealing with a lot of people in in one room, and you were actually the youngest ever CEO appointed for Netball Victoria so what was that like for you being so young and was age ever an issue when you were the CEO? Uh,
0: No it's never it's never been an issue actually it's probably been a slight advantage when you're a bit younger you can kind of plead the fifth a bit you know like you, you 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 don't expect yourself to know everything. And so when I went into that role, I really saw it as not only an amazing opportunity to learn about another sport, but actually an incredible opportunity to lead and to learn about myself as a leader. And I, I never felt the pressure of needing to know everything or to come in as a so-called expert, and, and I never positioned myself that way. So maybe Being a bit younger brings a bit more naivety, which is actually a really good thing because if you think about it too much, you probably wouldn't take it on because it would feel insurmountable in so many ways. Um, So, no, I never found it um, a, a challenge in that front. I actually found that people thought it was pretty cool that, you know, there was somebody younger in leadership giving it a crack.
2: And if we come to current day now in 2021, you've started the Women's Leader of Sport group with the hashtag #HereSheIs campaign. Do you think you draw on a lot of those experiences from when you when you become the CEO? And can you tell us a little bit about what's motivated you to start that? Yeah, absolutely. So #HereSheIs campaign effectively
0: was born out of a bit of frustration, to be really honest. And, and that was, you know, maybe twofold. One was that I was constantly being called by recruiters or otherwise to say, oh, do you know of a marketing manager, or do you know of an events manager, or do you know, you know, because they didn't know the women that were working in, the role, in these roles across sport. And so kind of, I guess in, in the right way, they were trying to reach out to find them. But actually, I've always found the question of, you know, where these people are kind of befuddling because they're everywhere. They're, they're, women are in every role in every organisation across sport, but the problem being that you can't see them. So visibility was a real issue and you don't hear from them. And so I wanted to really play my role in increasing their visibility across sport to answer that age-old question, where are these women and to also create a community where women, particularly young women, knew that they actually weren't alone, they weren't isolated, so they might have only been the, the only woman in you know, their organisation or their part of the world or, or, or just a few of them. But actually, they're completely connected to this massive network of women. And that sport simply would not run without all the women doing all the roles that they're currently doing. So, you know, it was really twofold was to increase that visibility and to create connections and networks for women that they might not necessarily normally had access to. And you know, for three hundred and sixty-five days we're gonna profile one woman a day, it hasn't been a challenge to find these women. And you know, I hope that in the future, when someone says to me, Oh, do you know a marketing manager, all I'll need to say is hashtag here she is and go and have a look at our Instagram and you'll 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 be, you know, completely inundated with talent um, right across the the industry.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting because that's a really similar reason as to why Ash and I kind of started this podcast is like we know all these um, amazing women in the industry we go to these events we go to these conferences and we hear them speak but generally in sport no one kind of knows who they are whereas I you know we find them so inspiring and so intelligent and motivated they have so much to offer like Mm. yourself obviously that's why we're chatting to you today. One thing that is bit tricky and I I did read it in an interview that you did with The Australian and you mentioned no one within the federated model of swimming had adjusted to a different style of leadership and the truth is that people don't being like told what to do by a woman. How did that feel when you probably realised that after being there for a while and how did you manage this during your time at swimming?
0: Yeah it's a great it's a great question and I guess a complicated one all at the same time. There's one thing getting a job as a leader you know so you 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 you're thrilled that you get this opportunity to to lead and and really the reason for being often for me and others is the passion from from leading teams and really wanting to succeed in from that angle there's a there's another thing when you realize that the system itself isn't really set up for female leaders at this time and what i mean by that is that we are still at the point that we expect women, yes, they can come in and they can do these jobs, but they need to do them still like a man, that they need to lead in a certain way. And what I what I experienced was that there's a real stereotype about leadership that still prevails, and most of it's masculine. And in the sporting environment, it's hyper-masculine. There are winners and losers. There's tough and, tough and soft. You know, there's all these binaries everywhere. And we haven't yet change the system enough so that we are appreciating different forms of leadership. So I think we want to, we, we we have a, I guess, an insight that, you know, we want different kinds of leaders in the system, but actually the system right now is not set up in a way that women can really choose to lead in a different way. We're still very much that, you know, in that double bind of damned if we do, damned if we don't. So if we're tough, we're, we're you know, too tough. If we're not tough enough, we're focusing on the soft things and and not, you know, not really putting our attention where it needs to be. So these are all things, though, that are subtly played out. You know, there's no one sitting outside your office door saying, you know, this is how the way it's going to go. But there is a series of moments that build up over time that tell you what's acceptable and what's not and how you are being valued and judged. And my lived experience was about, that I was being judged on something quite different than perhaps um, my male counterparts. And, you know, there's a real, real cost to that. Um, I think if you want to lead differently, whether you be a male or a female and by different, I mean, you know, just not the prevailing norm of leadership. If you want to have a crack at that in a different way, I don't think yet we're really at the point where that's available to men and to women. it's It's a slow dawning on you, Sarah, about just, how things really are. We're not as forward thinking in this as we like to actually talk at the talk.
2: It's a really interesting and honest insight and I think people would be so grateful for you speaking up and sharing that and Unfortunately, I think your experience isn't isolated, and there's been a few other female leaders who have had similar experiences lately and and come out and said said as much. Is there one thing you think that we can do to change this that'll make a huge difference, or is it a series of little and ongoing things that need to happen before we see some real change?
0: Yeah, great great question. It, it's definitely a series of things, but. I think we try and complicate it beyond what it needs to be. So if we think about sport, it's only people. There's nothing else. We sell hope. You know, I used to joke all the time. We're hope dealers, not dope dealers. You know, we we, we sell hope. That's why we buy memberships. That's why we turn up to, to um, world champs, you know, all those sorts of things. We're, we're in the business of people and hope. And the only thing that's stopping us from changing anything is people. People, you know, created the system. We can actually change the system. So, I'd like to think it's really simple, but I know, you know, experience tells me that it's going to be a series of manoeuvres to get us to change it. What I would say is that in 30 years it hasn't changed. So the, the stats that I have been able to retrieve, so, you know, I'm, I'm not sure whether they're completely accurate, but the stats that have been taken is we're between, you know, anywhere between 9% and 11% of female NSO leaders at any one time. That's that's appalling for an industry that. I guess, purports to be for everybody. You know, sports should be your one industry where it isn't about male or female. It's about something quite different and, and, you know, it should be for everybody, but it's not. We talk too much about it, though. So what I would like to see as a, as a, as a point of difference and, and really a success measure is for us to stop talking about it and for the people in power to start doing something about it.
1: Being a CEO, whether it's in a super masculine environment or not, would just be, I can't imagine the challenges that it would bring, especially during COVID. And it sounds like, you know, you've had several experiences in in some previous roles. How do you actually look after your own one mental health and yourself as a priority throughout these challenging times, which I imagine, you know, as a CEO, you're working around the clock. But how do you make sure you're the the best person that you can be during these times? Yeah, I'm I'm
0: not sure <laughs> I, I'm not sure I've I've got a really nailed answer for this one because actually I feel like this is the area for me that I'm learning the most about as we as we go along. I think there's, it's vitally important that you're fit to lead, you know, from a mental and physical standpoint. And particularly in sport, when you know the benefits so much of, of physical movement and, and all that sort of stuff, it's a very hard thing to keep on the radar for yourself when you are carrying, you know, a lot of things in a, in a sort of big job. That's not an excuse so much as I, I feel like it, it, I've just been a bit shit at it most of the time. And for me, though, if I can give a cautionary tale, it's really culminated in, you know, in my mid-40s having to pay much more attention to that, that aspect and potentially that's, you know, something that I really did think about on the back of COVID and, and needing to, you know, keep looking after my family as well. That, you know, during my tenure as Swimming Australia I developed an autoimmune disease. You know, for the first time in my life, I didn't feel bulletproof. Up until then, I think I'd been able to run on the smell of an oily rag and get away with it. But like they do say, it's really true. You know, eventually things will catch up with you, and I think it really did for me. So I think uh, COVID obviously step changed some of our priorities collectively, and for, uh, you know personally, that is one thing that I'm I'm really trying to get back on track. It's easier to support someone do that than do it yourself. That's that's what I've found, and it's really hard to get back on that routine if you if that habit's broken down so uh, I would just encourage leaders to put it up the priority list um, earlier rather than later so you're not sort of dealing with other serious and significant things because stress does take a toll on people there's no doubt.
2: As a leader you must feel I guess responsibility to show that you're looking after yourself as well which can potentially add to your stress as well but It's so important. I think younger people are probably going to get much better at this as time goes on because, you know, mindfulness and leadership and mindfulness becoming so much more prevalent as people think about it. But I think one of the things that needs to change with that is people need to see their leaders going, hang on a second, I'm not feeling very well here. I need to take some time to look after myself and for that to be okay. And probably on that, you've written two books, which is pretty impressive, spent some time in the media, how have you found? I guess the transition between those different things—they're all very different. Being a CEO of an NSO, media author, how have you applied those different skills?
0: Uh, well, I haven't given it quite a lot of thought in terms of just how it all fits together. I feel like my career is a bit more of a patchwork quilt than a trajectory to anywhere, and I'm really—I love that. I love that I've been able to have the privilege of opportunities and and areas that I can develop myself in, and I love writing. I don't love media performing so much, I must admit, and but I took it on as a, as a real challenge. So when I did the Foxtel work with the recruit, they actually called and said, oh, would I consider doing this? And I just said no straight away. I'm like, as if I'm ever going to do this. And I got off the phone and I was chatting to my husband about it and he's like I call bullshit and I'm like well what what do you mean and he said well you you spend half your day every day telling people to stretch themselves and to you know go into uncharted waters and you know all of that that high performance mindset and the minute that something comes along that kind of scares you a little bit you say no to it and so I was cornered I had nowhere to go and that's the benefit of having I guess someone in your inner sanctum that is brave enough to call you on your on your BS and so I I rang them back and said, "Yeah, I'll do it." And it was the most terrifying thing I've done, but actually, the most one of the most rewarding because I, you know, at the age of, I think I was about 40 then. I was learning skills for the first time, and I realised how uh, and I hadn't probably learnt new skills like that for a long time. And so I just realised how refreshing that was, how much fun that was to learn new skills and to kind of feel like the novice again, and um, actually just to do something completely outside my comfort zone, you know, for that that period of time. So. Actually, became I've I become to love it. I don't know if I was any good at it, but I, I must say the inter the intersection of that came a lot later when I had to front cameras. For example, when we in swimming when we had a we had a Shana Jack issue, and uh, I'm sure that you know people will be familiar with. And you know you walk out and there's like 50 or 60 cameras at your at your doorstep. Had I not had the previous experience with media. I would have absolutely panicked, but because at least I'd had exposure to, you know, the other side, um, you know, I was able to kind of work with that hopefully in a, in a way that sort of worked.
1: Yeah, you mentioned there about Shane the Jack and it kind of fades into your last 12 to 18 months really. They were huge, obviously. You had to deal and manage the Shane the Jack scandal as CEO of swimming. COVID hit, so every sport was kind of thrown into this Grey area that we've never been in before. You stepped down as CEO and you were also, while doing all of this, living up in the AFL hub due to your husband's role. How did you go trying to balance everything in that environment and what was that like for you?
0: I didn't try to balance because I knew everything was so, I guess the right word is unique, you know, it's such a unique set of circumstances. I tackled every day as a discreet day and then got up again and did it the the next morning and kind of strung a few of those together. And it's really interesting. Even the abnormal becomes normal. So even living in a hotel room with kids and, with, you know, away from people and everything seems to kind of become somewhat normal at some point and you forget what, you know, other life is is about. But uh, for me, I really, I found, I just found COVID and the whole thing extremely difficult from personally and professionally. I, I absolutely hated standing down staff knowing that there was a genuinely horrible impact that was happening in the back room with them i i hated not knowing you know from one week to the next at, at one point what the future held for people and i i felt the responsibility of that really profoundly and and i guess that was the thing that was keeping me up at night was just how are we, how long is this thing going to go for and how are we actually going to rebound if we do? You know, the membership model in sport is effectively broken as we know it anyway. Would this really stop people coming and participating in sport at the grassroots level or, or you know, how can sport play the role that it needs to play in the recovery of communities? So the big questions and I'm sure every leader at the time was feeling the same thing but I just I just acutely felt it was it I found it the most difficult thing was was standing down staff and not having an answer for them and their future all the while my future was looking a bit grim not so much from a CEO perspective but a financial perspective like everybody else but also then because we're both in sport how would we manage a family and what is actually going to happen here and you know we, we just yeah, day by day proposition. So, like everybody, you know, really challenging time. and yeah, I hope I hope we don't have to go through that again. Hub life wasn't as pe- as perhaps some of the media might have portrayed it to be, and and certainly the discussion around women in hubs as wags and things really, I was severely disappointed by. And probably frustrated that we're still at a point where we see women's role in sport as so tokenistic that, you know, we group them under an umbrella, a a disrespectful umbrella and, you know, kind of poke fun at them. I just, I found quite distressing and it's something I'd really hope that if if anything like that happened in the future, again, we would perhaps uh, look at that a bit differently.
2: From a leadership point of view, collaboration is obviously really important to you. How did you find that during that COVID period, did you have to innovate on ways to do that? And how do you think that's, I guess, influenced you overall is how collaborative you've been? Oh, yeah, like everyone,
0: I mean, I, I think I'd been on like two Zoom meetings um, and thought I was pretty fancy before COVID, you know, if we had to do that. I remember getting a TV installed in my office in um at Swimming Australia and thinking oh my god I'm so innovative you know I'm going to be able to sit and watch people on this tv and then I never actually had a meeting on it because we shut down the office but I found oh I actually the first thing that was quite a a shock to me I, I did a presentation I think it was for Sport Australia Hall of Fame and there was a couple hundred people on there and everything and it wasn't long after we all shut down and I just found it extremely different to then be stand then not be standing in a room, being able to read body language and um, engage with the energy. And I learned that day that I'm a real people like I have to be around people to kind of read reading the rooms. My special thing and and then reacting accordingly and so all of a sudden all we had is zoom and I hate looking at myself and I hate hearing myself and you know all those sorts of things and I I reverted to a tactic you know to kind of get the energy going and the collaboration and and real connection what I learned in tv which was you have to kind of be over-energized to look like you you kind of you know averagely energized and so I would spend a lot of energy cracking jokes and smiling and doing all the body language things to try and get people engaged and find I was exhausted at the end of the day because I literally used all of my energy energy points up in in something that isn't really natural to me on a a screen. So, yeah, I bring on real public places and cafes and meeting rooms and everything, like just bring it back.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think people, now that they can be back in the office, have found that they like a good mix and probably prefer to be in a little bit more than they would have thought pre-COVID where work from home was the dream and now there's the new challenge of where half of the meeting might be at home and the other half in the office so we've got to learn a whole new thing about technology as well. Yes. I'm sure you had a few I guess learning curves during that and a lot of times in your career. How do you continue to learn? Remaining curious. I I think
0: never having uh, never having the mindset that you know it all or that you've finished learning Maybe this comes naturally from an education background, but, you know, there's always something more to learn and I try and approach every conversation with that in mind, even though if I think the person I'm talking to might not have something for me, there will always, always be one or two things that I can take and I think the, the beautiful thing about sport is the exposure to so many different people and so many people who are amazing at what they do and so the, the capacity to learn is kind of endless. And um, what I love about high performance is that's where the magic is. you know if you think you know it all, you're actually gonna you're on the on a hiding to nothing and you'll lose. But if you are trying to find the the one percenters or that one piece of information that will make the difference or you know the one behavior that that you can instill into your players, for example, that's kind of what keeps me going. And so that just having a lifelong learning mindset is uh, is pretty critical to me. and you know, Really, it's just about being curious and keep keep your mind mind open and sometimes your mouth shut and your ears open.
1: Something you did and it really struck a chord with me. Spoke about it just briefly before, but I wanted to kind of touch on it again because I can very much um, relate to this is that I mean I haven't worked with you but I've read that you have a no-nonsense approach and like to tell it like it is and that's something that I know a lot of friends and people listening might struggle to find the balance because females have this like you mentioned fine line of You know, if you're too tough, you're a bitch. But if you aren't tough enough, you don't have what it takes to make it. And we feel like we're walking this tightrope constantly trying to make sure, you know, you're doing the right thing. And throw in, God forbid, if you're like me and you're a people pleaser, so you're just anxious the whole time making sure you're trying to do the right thing. How have you, I'm sure this has developed as you've um, grown in your career, but how have you worked around this so far? I think I'm
0: a people pleaser too, but I've chosen the people that I want to please, if that makes sense. So I, I've narrowed the, the, the window of, of people, I guess, in, in the review that I'm going to worry about their opinion. I've absolutely had to find that tightrope where you're not entering the realm of offending someone, but you're also staying true to what you're thinking and, and, and your view on something. That is definitely easier with age. There's no question of that. And You know, I think I struggled a lot earlier on. But I also have a just a, I'm just, I'm really committed to just saying things as they are. It doesn't mean that they're right. So I've got to, you, you've got to be courageous enough with yourself, I guess, to not worry whether they're right or wrong. But it's simply a view, it's simply, you know, something else to add into the mix. You may not win the argument or the conversation, and that's not the point. The point is to get you and your team to the best decision often so for me the strategy that's worked is i've had to let go what people think about me you know there's a there's a really great little saying that what people think about you is none of your business and i've i've really tried to kind of integrate that in because you can get so hell-bent on what people are thinking and yet most of the time they're not thinking about you at all you know that people's lives are busy and they're um, centered around their, themselves and their families and and whatever they're doing their jobs they're not going home thinking about the thing you said in the meeting, or you didn't say, or you know the mistake that you made, and whatever. They're, they're just simply not. And you know, it, it, yeah, it just it's about caring less, but caring about the right things potentially. And and also then knowing, I think what makes it easier is not feeling so isolated. So if you've got people that have got you back in a meeting sense, or in a, in a workplace sense, or whatever that will give you a nudge along the way. You know, they can say, Lee, I think you're a bit out of line here, or Lee, you know, how about you try it that way? It's so so not surrounding yourself with just cheerleaders and people telling you things that you want to hear, but actually the things that you need to hear, the, the little nudges along the way that people can give you to kind of open your eyes to something that you might not be conscious to, rather than before it becomes a big problem. But I, I, I've just really always reached into the elephants in the corner because I know from a high performance perspective, if you've got one elephant in the room, that will be the thing that holds that team back. And so, you know, I think it's incumbent upon leaders of high performance to kind of find the elephants and do something with them.
1: Yeah, that really, I mean, strikes a chord with me, especially the giving, you know, getting feedback from your peers as well about what you can improve. And you have to be something that I've learned over the past you know, couple of years is you have to be open to that feedback as well. And it's only going to help you grow. And some people just take, and I probably used to do this, you know, just take feedback as criticism. But actually, if you're open to it and you think back and you reflect and you go, actually, yeah, I probably could have. Said that a bit better or approached that a bit better. Ultimately, it's just helped me in my role like 10 times over over the last 18 months. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think the one skill that we all lack that's not taught as a discrete skill is the giving and receiving of feedback. You know, think about what I learned in uni and whatever, there was none of it around that, and yet the workplace completely is that's like the centerpiece of it you know the only way you can get better is with feedback there's a lot of we have blind spots you know they're they're natural and normal for everybody and we need to kind of learn to laugh at ourselves a little bit you know there are things in us that are going to drive people nuts and it's better to know that you know and be able to minimize that or do something about it or even laugh at that than have it in the corner and no one's addressing it but it just becomes a bigger problem and, and a career inhibitor and so, what, again, one of the things I love about high performance is, you know, coach to, to athlete, they're giving feedback all the time. And they use that feedback as information, not as um, an offensive form of, of conversation. So, but it all, all relies on trust, right? Like you, you can't, people can't just give you feedback for, you know, unsolicited. You, you've got to invite that in. Uh, you've got to trust people that they've got your back, but they're also going to help you on your way too. And I've just been really lucky that I've always had those kinds of people in my in my life. And I'm hope I hope that I can also do that for for people with their permission, of course. But I must say I have had I have had times where I, like a bullet a gate I haven't realised the impact that I've had on, on people. One one in particular at Sewing Victoria you know I go in with this change um, agenda everyone wants change everyone's talking about change and so I start changing things and changing people's roles and all that sort of stuff and every day someone's crying and I come home and I say "I, I don't know why I'm causing all these tears and but what I what I didn't realize is I was giving feedback in my way my very direct feedback sandwich I guess is is the right term for it and yet they weren't quite you know, it wasn't time, wasn't it? Wasn't the place to give that kind of feedback. There was a, there was a def, different mechanism needed at that time. So it's situational. That's for sure.
2: Yeah, I think one of the best pieces of feedback I've ever gotten was learn how to take feedback. I still think I probably need to improve <laughs> on it sometimes, but
1: it's very oh, it's true.
2: It's so yeah. hard to not get defensive in that snap of the moment and just sort of take it in and, and go away and think about it. The, the only the only thing I've
0: learned Ash to do is to say thank you for that feedback. It doesn't mean that you have to take it all on. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything. but if you give yourself like a, a, a moment to breathe with it and say thanks, I'll come back can I can I come back to you on that or can I just give me a minute to think about it? because other, because otherwise like me I'm sure the, the first line is attack. I yeah. um, <laughs> so, no yeah. doubt,
2: like at worst case, even if you don't agree with the feedback, all that's probably going to happen is you're going to know how to deal with that person totally. better. Like you're going to have a better understanding of of how they're feeling and, and hopefully be able to um, work towards some mutual goals. Yes. One of the things we did want to ask when you? and you've done so many amazing things, but what would you like your legacy to be in sport? I'd like younger women to not only
0: know that there's a leadership pathway to see it. I would like to stop talking about the first woman this or, the you know, the first woman that and actually celebrate the 20th or the 30th or the, you know, the the, the milestone number that's so far down the track that we've forgotten that it's an issue. So I think in terms of legacy, I want to leave a place that, uh, well, you know, everyone does better than we found it. In my world that means many, many more women not being stopped or detoured um, by barriers and that young women you know in, in a decade's time don't even don't even see these issues as being issues they're just kind of getting on with it and um, you know I'm witnessing lots of different kinds of leaders in in the sports space.
1: Yeah I think that's that's awesome and you know like we mentioned earlier I think right now I can only think of one or two you know female CEOs of sport um, organizations at the moment and it's sad that we can you know, count them on one hand. So, hopefully, that's not a you know figure moving forward. It kind of sounds like I feel like you're about to embark on what will end up being your most rewarding piece of piece of work. But what has been the most rewarding piece of work that you've achieved in your career so far? Do you think? We might um, be breathing it.
0: A little, a little bit. I mean, I, I've I've loved it all. Um, the most rewarding. Probably. I mean, look, the elusive thing, I'd love to have won some gold medals for Australia at the Olympics. That would have been amazing. But possibly the most rewarding role I ever had was at the Gold Coast Footy Club before it was even a footy club. So, you know, it was a role that was kind of a green field and it literally was just that, you know, there was just a shed. There was a few people working in a shed and we were all working towards this common goal of this this new club and it was very exciting and but also terrifying, you know, how, how to sort of set something up from, from nothing and in a community which wasn't used to having that sport kind of be the prevailing sport. So that to me, usually I, I get roles that, you know, things need fixing or changing or, you know, whatever you kind of that change agent with that role, it was literally let's dream big. How do we want to build this thing? What do we stand for? What do we, you know, who do we want to bring in? So that was that was a pretty amazing opportunity. You know, that doesn't come along very often. That probably to me stands out. But actually um writing my book's probably been the most rewarding and I'd love I'd love to do that again.
1: And to think now, Gold Coast, you were there when it started in a shed and now they have, you know, a women's team, they're That's doing nice. really well. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, some of the it, Victorian teams are still trying to put women's team in and the Gold Coast got on the front foot and said, No, we want to be part of it early.
0: Uh, it's just, a, honestly, I take such, um, just a quiet personal pride and I hope that everybody working um, at the club in, in those days do as well, that even like the song, for example, you know, it's all these little things that you don't, you take for granted that are, are that are part of a club. You know, I remember having conversations about the song and what it should be and um, Malcolm Blight kind of, you know, humming tunes about it and all that sort of stuff and, you know, to see it grow and evolve into something I don't even recognise now, you know, which is which is exactly as it should be um, and ha- women's team and everything. I just think every time they take one step forward, I think that's, that's so awesome and, um, you know, I'm so, so proud and privileged to have played a role in that really early on, many wins ago now.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. It'll be something um, to look back on, no doubt. And I'm sure when the day comes and they win their first premiership, you'll be very excited. Oh, no doubt, unless they're playing my team and then they can definitely lose. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Most of your career has been in AFL footy, which is predominantly male, I shouldn't say predominantly, it's very male dominated. So I guess you've kind of always been part of the minority for the majority of your career. So you would have been, you know, flying the flag, ever since you started in the industry.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that. Minority of the majority in my career. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But that's the experience of many women, um, you know, working across sport. Even if the sport is equal on the field, it's generally unequal off the field of whatever play, you know, um, whatever context. It it didn't really strike me as kind of that until maybe a few rolls in. um and you know you sort of just got on with it and I was so um focused on high performance and and building teams and all those sorts of things so yeah it was interesting I guess I think I think the thing that I'm most concerned about or despairing is that I was having these conversations you know um around um being the minority when I started I'm not young anymore um i would have thought by now we would would be having such a different conversation so it it sort of hurts it hurts a bit when i meet a young woman and she shares her story with me of being the minority and i just think oh we're we're still there so you know i I'd, I'd hope that um yeah, we can we can kind of fast track that before I die, if that's okay, please. Yes,
1: I think um, it reminds me of when I was starting out and you look at jobs, obviously, I mean, I would love to have played AFLW, but I grew up in a different state and it wasn't a thing when I was younger. But you look at these job descriptions and it's like you have to have AFL experience and you had to have you know, finished uni. So I'm like doing the calculations. It's actually impossible for a female to have had yes. AFL experience but being the age that they have been yes. to uni and completed it. So and then we wonder why females don't even apply for jobs. So there's so <laughs> many things that I find in sport. Of course, we need our subject matter experts for whatever relevant mm-hmm. game. But there are sometimes there are so many other skills that those people might not have that are just as much needed in the industry as well.
0: This is this is the next frontier, I guess, is to degender a whole bunch of stuff in sport that doesn't make sense. You know, my earliest uh, example of that was working at the AFL Players Association. There were no player development managers at that time, and so the AFLPA played a really strong role in um, athlete welfare, which was fantastic. We set up the first national system. But then what we started seeing is guys who played the game become the player development manager without any experience, skill or expertise. Now, it didn't mean they were a bad person, but it didn't mean they were the most qualified for that role that, in my view, was a really critical role to get right and to make sure that they had someone at every club that um, were, you know, professionalised that space. Now, that's moved forward. but. But, yes, the go-to for many years has been have you played the game? If not, how do you understand that, even at the board level? Now, it, it's just nonsense. And actually what we need in sport is diverse thinking as much as we need diversity. So, you know, the, the next level of thinking around this is to actually look, start to look at some of these roles and descriptions of roles Women aren't even applying for these jobs because, as you said quite rightly, they think they're excluded from the get-go. But And then we say, well, why are women are not in the system? It's Well, because the system's uh, not working to include everybody. So I hope that we can start to intellectualise that a bit rather than just kind of keep rolling out the same old, same old. There is a place for everybody. There is a place for former athletes, but right now it's only if you're male. You know, right now if you're a female athlete there is no clear pathway for your leadership skills. So we're we're putting a lot of emphasis on on playing our females playing the game of anything, but actually, what do they do at the end of their career? I can't hand on heart tell them right now that there's a pathway for them, which is which is
2: super sad. You made an interesting point a little bit earlier around when you first started working in sport. You potentially weren't aware of some of these issues, and I think I would probably um, reflect that as well. You know, Sarah and I often say on this podcast we've been really lucky and we've had really positive experiences in our careers but I think as the older you get and the more you move on and you move up to leadership positions or you see people in leadership positions and you're dealing with them you do realize that it is more prevalent than maybe you thought do you think that's because people are sort of happy to have females in these sort of doing roles but and that's their sort of way of saying you know females are here and there's plenty of them in sport but once it becomes to the leadership category um that's a bit of a different story and again we've said it a million times we've had really good experiences but there's clearly something broken yeah um, I would I would
0: say I've had good and bad and amazing and shocking you know like the the whole gamut of of experiences it's a really interesting one I I think it's easy to talk about these experiences and also to analyze these experiences when they're when you can reflect and they're kind of a bit behind you and also share your story a little bit when you're younger who do you tell you know, if you're if you're a coordinator in a in an organisation, you're desperate to work in sport. Who who you actually tell that something has just been a bit off, or you know, there's a, a there is something really off. You know, there's it's not a safe space to share story. And so I think, you know, if I reflect back on my experience, I sort of just got on with it, thinking that it will get better at some point. Or um you know that I was tougher than it that was I, I could I could ride this storm out or or whatever it was and and so you know yes with 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 leadership um opportunity comes you know privilege to be in that that um position and you feel more comfortable sharing the stories of of what's happened I guess um so, it's, it, yeah, it's just hard to find your voice when you feel sometimes small and sometimes, you know, unworthy and you know that effectively if you speak up, they'll just find somebody else to do your job. You know, there, there, there's, it's not, we're, not in a, we're not in a time yet where that isn't a threat. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think it might be a combination of things, but certainly young people and, and feeling empowered to, to speak about things I think is, yeah, it's just a very big challenge.
2: And you've given so many wonderful pieces of advice. If you were to give your top three tips to some a uh, young female who's looking to get started in sport or maybe someone who's wanting to make a career change into sport, what would they be? Yeah, probably, I, I don't want to sort
0: of repeat myself, but maybe
2: um, uh,
0: surround yourself with a great inner sanctum, um, but not just cheerleaders, people that will nudge you, as I, we sort of chatted about before. Needing to, You just need to build your feedback muscle. Don't be afraid of it. Uh, The more you can expose yourself to feedback, the less the knife through the heart hurts, (laughs) you know, the less kind of personal it becomes. And very early on with me when I was sitting in coaches' boxes and and doing all those sorts of things in an AFL sense, I decided I needed to know everything that I needed to improve in order to improve it before I was told it Um, so that nothing anybody said was ever a surprise. And so hopefully um, that helped me. And I think my favourite one is say yes and figure it out later but don't say yes to the shit that women normally take on like being, you know, the minister for the cake baking in on Tuesdays at the staff meeting or, you know, I'm going to clean up the kitchen. Say yes to everything but strategically and figure out the how later on. Give give every give every woman you, a call that you know to figure out the how but um, keep saying yes because it all adds up to um, some impressive experience.
2: Love that. Awesome yeah. advice. Wonderful pieces of advice. Thank you so much for your time today. We've took you for probably a lot longer than we told you we would. So we really, really appreciate the time. And everyone should jump onto the Here She Is campaign on Instagram and Twitter and have a look at that because you're sharing. So many wonderful stories, and we look forward to seeing that continue for the rest of the year. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you to you both, and just
0: thank you for the work that you're doing um, in and around this, and sharing people's stories. It's it's so important and powerful. So you know, thank you so much for for all of that.
2: Thanks. Thanks so much, Lee. Hopefully we can speak to you again soon. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Sports Intuition podcast. If you did, we would greatly appreciate you taking the time to leave us a rating and any reviews. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode.